What happens if you're an author preparing to talk about how your true life stories become stories for other people to read? And then your talk is canceled because you live in Minnesota. And I do hear that Freudian slip. You live in Minnesota and, oh my gosh, it's going to snow again. If you're me, you record that talk as a podcast. I'm Amy Hallberg. You're listening to Frau Amy's World. This is episode number eight. This podcast presents conversations with and for real-life creatives on how we find and keep walking our unique paths. Welcome to my world. So how did my real-life story become my real-life story that you can read? How did that happen? Not easily, but slow and steady, and you're about to find out. So this week, I had the opportunity to talk at the author studio at the Art Center in a town that I never mention in my book, but where a lot of my book took place. It's the town where my grandmother lived. My grandmother, who was the city clerk there, and I'm telling you, when grandma retired, they had to hire three people to replace her. And that's how devoted she was to that town. Every story starts out with the question, How did we start there with an intention to go somewhere and instead we ended up here? And the story is the events that get us there. So it's not some random string of events. It's a process that we live into. My grandma lived in this town. My paternal grandma, I should say. She loved genealogy. That was a fine distinction she would want me to tell you. (sighs) I was baptized in that town. When I was nine, I don't quite remember how old, we took the Bibles and the hymnals and walked across town to a brand new building. The old building's still there, of course, but we moved on. And in my grandmother's house, I remember sitting on her sofa recording my first reading, a book that she wanted me to read, by the way. And in that house, my grandmother kept a copy of a cringe-worthy magazine I made in one of those gifted enrichment classes at school. I worked so hard on this magazine, and it was um, it was it had green front and back covers made out of construction paper, and inside was indigo ditto ink pages. You know those white pages. It was 1980 when I made that. Ronald Reagan had just been elected that year. And I made this, and and for some reason I gave one of the copies to my grandmother, which was probably a mistake. I'm sure she showed it to all of her friends, and worse than that, she kept it. (laughs) So that by the time she moved out of that house when I was 13, I was mortified by that. And I had told her a few times in the intervening years that I did not want her keeping that magazine, and she had insisted. So now here she was, giving me this copy, presenting it to me, I was to have it, and I didn't want it. And I was really angry. My grandmother and I tangled. We are probably more alike than not. Grandma was a force of nature, and so, by the way, am I. I'm reminded of this as I look out across the Minnesota snowy landscape. It's snowier than it's been since I was a kid. So Grandma took that magazine, my green construction paper ditto ink magazine, and and that wasn't what was mortifying. What was mortifying was the content inside. The stories were just so stupid. They definitely fit the description of what Anne Lamott would call a shitty first draft. 
That was not a word I used back then, and my grandma would have been mortified to hear me use that word, but I digress. Grandma took that magazine out, and she looked me in the eye and very disappointed and said, I saved this for you. <laughs> and she was hurt. <laughs> and I was mad, and I took that box home. It was in a big box of, uh, it was boxes. She used to get these boxes from Xerox machines. So grandma had her own personal Xerox machine at City Hall that she could use anytime she wanted. We would sneak in on the weekend when nobody else was allowed in there. She had a key. We would go in that Xerox machine room and she could use colors of any kind of copy paper she wanted. So, you know, I mean, and, and to, to be fair, my grandma did the minutes for city council meetings. So like she would listen carefully to these recordings and type them meticulously. She had all her ways of correcting mistakes. She got it perfect. And these were documents for the public record, like the real honest-to-goodness public record, and everybody read them. So, you know, they were for public consumption. My work, however, was not. When I got home, I dumped out that copy paper box and I found that magazine and I ripped it to shreds, little bits, and threw it away. <laughs> so mad. <laughs> you know that you have to be able to do that as a creative, right? That if you do not have the freedom to destroy your work, you do not have the freedom to truly create the work that wants to come through you. Please don't forget that. My grandmother was so proud of me. She was so proud of me. I know that. In fact, I was driving this week just thinking about what I was going to say, and it was really sunny with all the, with all the snow and sun, and etc. I was driving towards the retirement home where she lived in her final years, and the sun was directly in the middle, and there were rainbows on both sides. And I choose to take that as a sign that Grandma knows exactly what I'm doing. When we are telling our stories, First and foremost, we have to tell them for ourselves. We have to locate ourselves in the landscape if we want it to ring true and be something that's really accessible to other people on a heart level. This is the part of the writing I call practice. So you can't see this here, but what I'm looking at is my feelings journal. <laughs> it is also mortifying, but it's a thick, hardcover journal that I brought with me when I was... 17. I started it when I was 16, did a couple entries, but I really didn't do much with it until I got to Germany at 17. And I wrote in it every single day. You know, and right now, here's the song going through my head. I am 16, going on 17. This journal, you have to picture it, okay? It's got blue clouds in the sky, like a field of blue cloudy sky, and in rainbow signature, like a handwriting, it says feelings. <laughs> Oh my goodness. And the stuff inside of it is pretty cringeworthy too. It was a start. When I started looking at Germany, I started with a question. And the question was, how could Germans let something like that happen? A footnote here. I also had an elderly relative who married into our family fairly late in her life. And this woman had never been married before, and she was fluent in multiple languages, um, Swedish and Norwegian, and she had traveled the world. She had been to the Holy Land, and she was the one person in my family who spoke multiple languages who recognized my gift and said, you can do this. Other people saw it, but they didn't know other languages. This woman, I call her Cora in my book, she did, and she, she saw that potential in me, and she was a devout Christian, 
this is the part that doesn't make sense because my mother had always told me about the Christians who had hidden Jewish people in their houses during the Holocaust. Corey Tinboom um, and her sister Emily, they wrote about it in The Hiding Place, and they hid the Jewish people because they were Christians and their faith demanded it. But but Cora, my great step grandmother, who had always been in my life, and I always called her by her first name, she was an active Holocaust denier. How does somebody who has traveled so widely and seen so many things and known so many things, how do they get caught up in something so insidious? I mean, she subscribed to the magazines back then. They were magazines. And I never asked her about this to her face. She had told me some other weird things, so I guess I understood that she had a few quirks to her. But my grandmother told me that this was true. And remember my grandmother was a genealogist, and remember that my grandma took the minutes? She didn't make stuff up. She documented her sources. My grandma was meticulous. And if grandma said that Cora subscribed to magazines that denied the Holocaust ever happened, trust me. That's fact. Anyway, going to Germany, I had questions. I had an agenda. I had things I wanted to know. And that's part of what I was hoping to learn. You know, it was the 80s. It was the Cold War. We kids growing up in the the 80s, we were all very aware of that Berlin Wall and the two Germanys and and the Holocaust and Sound of Music. We knew all that stuff. We all wanted to play Liesel in the musical and sing that 16 going on 17 song, you know? So I was paired with my German exchange sister, Eva. She came to stay with my family for three months of my junior year. That's when I started that feelings journal. And then I went to stay with her for three months the following spring, attend her high school. They call them gymnasium in Germany, which is confusing to us, I know, because gymnasium is a sports hall, but their version of a high school that she went to was called a gymnasium. It was a college prep school. I had questions for Afa. Here's how I wrote about this in the book when I first met Afa. Afa was far more independent than I'd expected, which tells you how much I knew about Germans. On our way to see the Norwegian rock band AHA, you know, take on me, take on me. Okay, yes, my singing is a little rangy. You'll have to forgive me. I'm not editing it out. Afa <laughs> asked the first question that made me truly uncomfortable. An aside here, remember that I went into this thing thinking I was going to be the one asking questions. Here's the question Afa asked me. You ready for it? Why is there an American flag in the front of your church? It was around twilight, and we had just reached the freeway. What's wrong with flags in church, I said. I glanced at Afa's shadow profile. We would never do that in Germany, she said. We Germans aren't comfortable with flags. Our German government forced us to fly a flag and salute, but Americans love their flag. You sing the national anthem at every event. This isn't something we Germans would do. I lived in a German town on the rural side of the river. By the way, I wasn't even German, so that's interesting. The Catholic and conservative Lutheran churches laid their cemeteries side by side, generations of family buried on that land. If a single Jewish person lived in our town, I wouldn't have known it. 
As relative newcomers, we chose the more liberal of two Lutheran churches. I had gotten as far as questioning communion bread variations and wine versus grape juice. Did you say trespasses or debts when you asked forgiveness in the Lord's Prayer? As Apha pointed out, in theory, we had separation of church and state. So did God really bless America above every other nation? Maybe we were treading closer to German sins than we cared to admit. Yeah, see, the thing is... It was highly uncomfortable for me that Ava was asking me questions because we Americans, we do this. Pay attention. It happens all the time. We use German as shorthand for bad things happened on their watch and they let it happen. And it's a form of spiritual bypass. Now, I use this term, maybe it isn't so familiar to you. What I mean by spiritual bypass is that we are codependent. I mean, we're looking at all the other people, but we're not doing our own work. We're not looking at our own shadows. And it's not that I'm asking you to dwell on all the bad things, but the fact is, those shadows are there, whether we acknowledge them or not. So before we start telling stories about other people, we have to get clear on our own stories, first and foremost, for our own healing and for our authenticity. You know, Afa once told me, you know a lot, actually what she said is an awful lot, about our history. Perhaps you should learn more about your own. And Because I lived with Afa, her mother was a child refugee. You know, I've said this in interviews before. Her mother came from a town way in the north of Germany called Königsberg. And it doesn't exist anymore because now it's part of Russia. It's called Kaliningrad. And so when I stayed in this woman's home and she fed me the good food and made sure that I was taken care of and had a roof over my head and got me where I needed to go, this was a woman who didn't have time to learn English as a child because she was wandering the German landscape as a war refugee without parents, she and her siblings. And she told me this because her English was so rudimentary. She told me this in very basic German. So all I got were the facts. And trust me, she made those facts abundantly clear. And when I asked her, how did people do the things they did and how did they not speak up? She said, Amy, they didn't want to know. They knew it was all around them. They didn't want to know because how could they live with themselves? Now, because I lived with Afa, and because I lived with her mother, I was able to see that German story, the German films, the German literature, the German language from an entirely different perspective, and it became a really powerful mirror for me. And so the second voice that you need to start to excavate as you are writing your true life novel, your memoir, your book, is that platform message. What are you trying to express? What is your purpose in telling the story? It's not just a bunch of random things. Here's all the stuff that happened. One of my beautiful mentors, Sherry Register, kept saying, Amy, it's not autobiography. And I didn't know what she meant. But what it meant is you're not telling all that happened. 
You're doing your personal work and that's your story, sure. But this, this is your platform message. What is it that you want to express? So here's what I want to express. We Americans are not so different from Germans. If you live long enough, you will live to contradict yourself. And you will live to see how your ideals were both laudable and incomplete. So you write long enough that you begin to understand the work you have done and you understand the message that you're trying to express to the world. What they take away from it, that's their business, but you shape it as best you can and then you release it. You know, <laughs> you write until you are able to shape the persona that is the distillation of who you were. It's, it's you as the avatar, the persona that people see in that book. When you read my book, it's true to who I am, but there's a lot of things I don't tell you there. So here's a story that I do share in my book that captures the energy of what I want to express. I was never ready to teach when 40-plus students arrived. Rushing between the desks in the classroom, making my way up front, I would finish scrawling basic verb charts across the whiteboard, then head for the door, calling out final instructions to absolute beginners, seated in groups of three and four. Frau! Frau! they called in response. But I had to get to the lounge, where my more advanced classes waited. Students from both groups often stepped in my path. Frau! But I waved them away. I've told you what to do. Read the board. It's hardly defensible. It was what I could do. In the remaining minutes, I toted a portable whiteboard and dyeing markers to the lounge outside. Closing the door, I'd call out in German, Join me with your copies of Kafka! Students scrambled from every corner, carrying benches, jockeying for the sofa, leaving the center space open for me. I breathed while they found the right page, then dove in. Gregor Samsa awoke one day after restless dreams and discovered himself transformed into a giant vermin. They stared at their books, blank expressions giving way while I spoke. Look at this phrase, flimmernde Beine, say it with me. Flimmernde Beine, said the voices in chorus. Those are his flimsy, useless legs waving above his head. And his panzerartiges Rücken, I continued, stuck in bed on his back like a tank. I leaned back and waved my arms. Can't you just see him lying there helpless? Spoiler alert. I suspected I was that oversized vermin, possibly a dung beetle, flailing at the onset of a lingering, inevitable demise. There was no longer sweetness in my voice when speaking to students, hardly any for my own children either. Please make no mistake, I understood that that system was not good for people, teachers or students. And I tried my best to advocate, and I felt that I had no other choice but to stay. The thing of it is, when you're telling your story, you have to be able to tell that part of the story too. That was a really hard time, 
And I had a lot of work to do before I could tell you this story in a way that doesn't just come across as a victim. It was a horrible situation, and I stayed. And I had choices, and eventually I left. Now, when I was working on some of these parts with my writing partner, KQ, she read some of my things and said, Amy, I think you need to acknowledge some of your privilege here. (laughs) Which is pretty funny, you know, because I've just described a really hellacious landscape for you. But yes, I did have privilege. And I have to recognize that portion too. Also, I don't like the person that I became during that time. That was a really hard time for me. And I remember saying to KQ, I don't want to have to tell people I'm an asshole. (laughs) And KQ looked at me and she said, I don't either, Amy, but we have to. (laughs) You're not ready to release your book into the world until you can tell the full story. And even if you're not relating the full story, you're aware of what happened. You've done your work. I learned this first from Eva. She didn't defend what had happened in Germany. Make no mistake about it. She was not okay with what had happened. It was simply about getting real about the shadows that existed anyway. Doing the work to heal those places and release them. And that's how you become the persona in your book that is both authentic to who you are and aligned with who you are, but it's not all of you. It's the distillation of who you are within that story in concert with the platform that you've created, the message that you want to share. Remember my message? My message was that you will start out this place thinking you're going to end up here, but you will end up somewhere very, very different. I started out as somebody who was never going to make the mistakes that the people had made in the past. Either my great step-grandmother with her ignorance about a situation where she was doing harm through her intention to look past certain things. Well, I did that, didn't I? In the end, My persona is a girl who cared so much about getting things right. I'm talking about pleasing the people around her, getting the right answers, explaining away all the bad in the world, and getting really good grades. Ultimately, I learned the most, the Amy you'll read about in that book learned the most, from the failures, the places where she falls quite short of her ideals. And so it's not about changing the past. We can't anyway. It's about the journey to understand and knowing we can speak our truth openly. And by doing so, we can make a difference now. Thanks for visiting Frau Amy's World. Today's episode featured a talk I prepared for the author studio at Edina Art Center, and I will be appearing there in September when I hope to God there will be no snow, September 14th. If you're in the Twin Cities, mark your calendar now. If you enjoyed yourself, please subscribe to this podcast below where you can also offer a comment so people can find us. And there are links. You can join my Facebook group, Community for Creatives, if you want to try your hand at some of these things. And you can buy my book. 
There is a Readers and Writers Guide too. Check it out. Please and thank you for your support of my work. You can learn more about me at CourageousWordsmith.com. I'm Amy Hallberg, and until we meet again, travel safely.